This morning, hello to you joining us online. It's a beautiful day outside. I think the high today was supposed to be 70 degrees or something like that. That's kind of great. Hopefully it's behind us. Um, today we are going to be finishing Exodus and then shifting to Leviticus. And you know you love Leviticus. So you're going to be so excited. Um, we will finish up the Golden Calf narrative, kind of the end of Mount Sinai, that sort of stuff. And then we're going to get into all of these great laws from Leviticus. So all you rule followers out there, this is going to be like your sweet spot. It's going to be candy to you. Okay. Reminder that I do like questions. We got a lot of questions last week. And so I think the Golden Calf sparked a lot for everybody, which is great. Um, so a reminder, you can ask questions live right here, live online if you're watching on a social media platform, and email questions anytime during the week. We got a couple questions over email days later, um, and Bub collects those throughout the week and gives them to me as I prep each week, and so email them if something occurs to you or if you're having a conversation with a friend, because I know you all talk about this all week long, um, <laughs> that then you can send a question and that will really help because like I always say, if you have a question, someone else has the same question. So be bold and ask because it really helps people kind of get a deeper understanding of what it is that we are doing. And then a reminder that stmichael.org RBS is where you can get our bookmark schedule so you know what we will be studying each week. As of this week, we are caught up from my COVID lapse at the beginning of the semester. And you can listen to any of the podcasts of lessons for years and years behind us. So let's open with a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the gift of this day and the gift of life. May we receive that as a gift. And today, be more and more the people that you have created us to be. Fill us with your spirit. Give us discerning hearts and minds that as we study the work that you have done through faithful people in time, we can inherit, receive that baton today, and extend your hands of love to everyone we meet. Be with our friends who need your healing touch, those who are going through treatment, those who may be near death. Fill them with your peace. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I said we got a few questions last week. We did have one question during study last Wednesday that I did not know the answer to. Um, Pam, I think you asked about the archaeological evidence, didn't you? No. Who asked about the evidence for the jewels and things like that? Nobody wants credit? And you want credit for it? Okay. So <laughs> it was a very good question. We were talking about pooling all of the gold and jewels together to make the golden calf. And the question was asked, has there been archaeological evidence of things like gemstones or other precious metals at Sinai? where the Israelites would have been. It was a good question, and I thought I knew the answer, but I didn't want to answer wrongly. So I thought I knew the answer, which is no, and I was right. Um, so that nice, easy answer. But what I will tell you is if you were to look in your Bibles or in your commentaries, or if you were to Google something like the Israelites' journey through the wilderness, something like that, and to look at a map, you will see multiple options for how the Israelites could have gone between Egypt and Canaan. So remember, we, they leave Egypt, and they are ultimately going to Canaan, the promised land. They spend 40-plus years in the in-between space. Where'd they go? How did they go? What was their route? Where even is Mount Sinai? All of those questions are actually unanswered. We don't know their route. We can kind of piece together a few probable routes. We actually don't even know which mountain was the actual Mount Sinai where the Israelites were. Now, we do know there is a Mount Sinai, and there, is, there are groups that have created religious communities on Mount Sinai, and there are lovely people who will take you on a camel to go see Mount Sinai. We do not know if that's actually this Mount Sinai. Maybe. It's fine. Does it really matter? Not really. And so archaeologists have spent lots and lots of time going to different mountains trying to figure out, is this the one? Is that the one? And they're looking for stuff. Because you're exactly right, whoever asked that good question. Gold, jewels, I mean, something should have kind of hit the ground and remained. But nothing has been found. I did, however, in my little research, discover that there are mountains people claim are Mount Sinai's for some 
non-archaeological reasons. Like, there's one mountain in northwest Saudi Arabia, did you know, and at the top it is blackened, which must have been the fire and the lightning. No, that's not how that works. Um, but it made for a really nice article, and I'm sure somebody is now believing that that is true. It's not true. This is one of those stories where it does not need to be historic for it to be true. And we've talked about that now for years in this class. Historic and truth are not always necessary together. Something can be so very good and true, and we cannot prove the historicity. That's okay. It's like a good story. Stories can be true even if they didn't actually happen. Somehow, the Israelite, what I would tell you for me, the Israelites were in Egypt, they ended up in Canaan. Yes, that is historic. How did they get there and did all this stuff really happen exactly the way it happened in Exodus? Eh, it doesn't really matter. Interestingly, there's another question we got about the golden calf, so I'm just going to stop that line there and kind of get to another place. Somebody is very important this morning. Okay, <clears throat> we had another question. To confirm that women would not have entered the tabernacle. Correct. He said, just want to confirm, you are right. Women are unclean. I'll just leave that there. Um, second <clears throat> was a question about the golden calf itself. Was the calf representative of something? Essentially, why a calf and not any other animal? The answer, the real answer is we do not know. However, we can postulate that the calf was a sacred animal in many other religious traditions. The calf represented in many traditions fertility. And so it is not unusual for a group of people in the ancient world to preference fertility among almost anything else. Because if you, don't have, if you do not have babies, your whole tribe does not live. And so we've talked in here before about how um, Judaism is one of those traditions around the world, um, the ancient traditions, where the first priority of a good Jew is to have children. Which is one of the interesting questions that we could, oh, this is going to, I'm sorry, this is going to cause you trouble. Um, but one of the questions we could ask is, if, was Jesus a good Jew? And we would say yes. He was obviously respected as a rabbi. So then did Jesus have children? Eh, I mean, ponder that. <laughs> um, so it is, children are important. We know any kind of agrarian society that depends on actual hard work, if you do not have children, you do not make it. This is particularly true in societies where women cannot be landowners or really owners of anything. Children were a way for women, mothers, to actually gain security for the length of their life. And so kids are super, super important. It's very likely a calf was just kind of the best representation they had of their hopefulness. They were meant to, through the promise of Abraham, have lots of children, be a big nation. It would make good sense that the calf, as a symbol of fertility, would be something that they would put together as representative of God's promise. We had other questions around idolatry around the calf. And I'm not going to really be able to answer this as satisfactorily as you may want, wish, but by creating an image, I said we could read this charitably as the people were not somehow abandoning Yahweh, but instead they were doing something that made sense to them having been centuries in Egypt as an expression of faith that just wasn't exactly the way Yahweh wished for them to do it. A calf is very interesting because the promise that they inherited through Abraham was about the size of their nation. Could they have, in some nice way, actually chosen an image that represented very intentionally the promise that Abraham received from God? I think that's a very nice way to read it. All of what I am saying to you is completely made up. It is total conjecture. It is just trying to make sense of a story that is difficult. And so I do think that is okay. 
Um, we also had another question around the commandments because when I was talking about being charitable, someone asked if, why, <laughs> I'm going to actually read this. Um, is it correct that they, that they only got insight after receiving the first two commandments? Would that then allow the reading to be charitable? So in other words, when did they get the commandments? We know that this is an amalgamation of multiple different oral traditions. It is possible to read this as they received the commandments prior to the golden calf. It is also very possible to read this as they did not receive the commandments until after the golden calf. Both readings can be true based on the layering of the stories. I think it's entirely likely that the story of the golden calf is not meant to recall something historic. It is meant to anchor the idea of human fallibility way back from the very beginning of the Jewish tradition. And why I say that, because remember when this was finally written. This was written during and after the exile, when the Jewish people asked themselves the question, what did we do wrong? Or did God abandon us and if why? So they're trying to figure out where things went wrong in this path. Interestingly, this is not the only time that Jews create golden calves. If we look at 1 Kings chapter 12, you don't need to, I'm sorry, do not do that. Um, there is a king called Jeroboam, and Jeroboam actually, out of jealousy to Rehoboam, which it makes it super easy, right? It's like Elijah and Elisha. It's great because it's almost exactly the same name. So King Rehoboam, and Jeroboam were con conflicting kings with the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Jeroboam didn't want people uh, feeling as if Rehoboam was the best or the better king. And so one of the things that he did is he made two golden calves and sent them to major cities in his kingdom in order to balance out the fact that Jerusalem was in the other kingdom and the temple was in the other kingdom. In reflection, in the exile, it is very easy to understand how the Jews may have seen that kind of moment as very problematic. Because they knew the commandments at that point. They knew you're not supposed to create idols. You're not supposed to worship images. And yet, Jeroboam did that. Could that have been one of the reasons that God essentially allowed them to be overwhelmed and taken into exile? Sure. And so, as they're creating this story, wouldn't it make good sense for them to have told a very similar story of how people at the very beginning did a very similar problematic thing? And God's faithfulness to people over time, even through being messy, remained. If you are in Babylon and you are wondering if you will ever get free, what a powerful way to understand God's faithfulness than to tell a story about a golden calf that happened at the foot of Mount Sinai that upset God and Moses, and yet God did not abandon them. How wonderful would that gift be as you are sitting in exile wondering if you will ever be free again? Because there they were able to reiterate very clearly, God will not abandon them for doing bad stuff. And so therefore their hopefulness that they will one day be out of Babylon could be sustained. Does that all make sense? Okay, that was kind of a lot of, that's a lot of me making stuff up, but I do think I, I can connect a few dots in while, while I'm making stuff up. Okay, any follow-up questions or just comments about any of that? We're not quite done with the golden calf. I should have said at the beginning of the lesson, we have four, four, five, five sections today. The first is just a recap of the golden calf. We're going to close that out. Then we're going to shift to Leviticus. We're going to talk about what Leviticus actually is, like where it fits. We're going to talk about how to worship, making offerings, and reconciling wrongs. Those are going to be the three big ideas of Leviticus today. So let's just finish Exodus. So very end of Exodus, we're going to look back, and we're going to look, jump back with me to, let's go back to chapter 32. 
because we didn't quite finish the whole golden calf stuff. Remember, Moses is up on the mountain receiving these great Ten Commandments from God and just hearing other good things. Joshua is somewhere like on the side of the mountain waiting for Moses, basically. Aaron and the others have stayed down the foot of the mountain and they're just getting impatient. And so they have this grand idea. Let's put together a golden calf. We're going to celebrate. And remember, Aaron actually says, we're going to celebrate Yahweh. We're going to actually have a party in honor of Yahweh with the golden calf. And so people start dancing and singing and drinking and hooping it up. It's like, it's totally like a parish party, right? Um, and so we're doing all of that all around the golden calf. It's great. And yet this is not what God wishes the people to do. And so Moses hears that the people are doing this and God says, I'm just going to get rid of them and we're going to start over again. And Moses says, please don't. And like any parent, when your child has misbehaved in public, it is very natural to first and with all the peacefulness you can muster, apologize to the person who has been offended upon, right? So your child breaks a thing in a store, and then perhaps the first thing you say, or even better, in someone else's home, right? He knocks over a vase in someone else's home. First thing you say to the homeowner is, I'm so sorry, so sorry, right? And you're calm, and like everything is right with the world, a nice apology. And then when you turn around to your child, what happens? Claws and fangs, right? <laughs> Fire out of your mouth right? It is, that is really what happens here with Moses. God hears about what the people is doing, and God's like, oh, they're so good. They're so nice. No, listen, they're going to be okay. I promise everything. I'm so sorry. Everything's going to be fine. God's like, okay, then I will leave them alone. Then Moses says, thanks so much, and turns and comes down the mountain, and he is on fire. And so he may have prevented God from destroying the people, but that doesn't mean he doesn't get to destroy the people. And so he is coming down the mountain. Here we go. Ver chapter 32, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen these people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and of you I will make a great nation. So in that moment he's saying, I'm going to hang with you. Everyone else is dead. Verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O God, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Israel and great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath. Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. All right, Moses has saved the people. Now, let's keep going. Verse 15, then Moses turned, here comes dad, and went down from the mountain, carrying the two tablets of the covenant in his hands. Jump to verse 17. Joshua said to Moses, there was a noise of war in the camp. But Moses says, it is not the sound made by victors or the sound made by losers. It is the sound of revelers that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets from his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it into powder, scattered it in the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Pause there. That is some good Bible stuff right there. We do not get to read this in church. And I want to make a note. I talk about this kind of stuff with my children, and I think it was last fall that in third grade they were doing a lesson on this, and they left this part out, and my daughter raised her hand and said, but remember, Moses made the people drink the gold. The teacher was like, what? Yes. Because um, that's the good stuff. Come on. Um, so here in this moment, Moses comes down. He is angry. He throws the tablets down and breaks them. 
<laughs> I love that image. It is so good. He is so mad and he comes down out. He takes the calf, burns it, melts it, grinds it, and forces everyone to drink it. That could be why you do not find any archaeological evidence of gold <laughs> at Mount Sinai. Keep going, verse 25. When Moses saw that the people were running wild, for, Abraham, for Aaron had left him, blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry, I don't need to read this to you. Mm-mm-mm. Oh, here we go. When Moses saw that the people were running wild, Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you. Go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. The sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 of the people fell that day. Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son or a brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves this day. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The Levites are the priests. They are the priestly tribe of Israel. Why? This is apparently the way that the Israelites, the Jewish people, tell the story of why the Levites are the priestly tribe. Who do you think wrote this part of the story? Give you one guess. The Levites! You're exactly right. So, in a sense, what has happened here is the Levites have told a particular story such that it supports their authority as priests. Eh, that's fine. The Levites do become the priestly class. And so that's really where you get all the priests of the temple are come from the tribe of Levi, basically. Here, the Levites are the faithful ones. They're almost like the ones that kind of didn't go to the party. And so they get to take the swords and hurt the people who did go to the party. Now, 3,000 people, certainly big, but remember how many people actually came out of Egypt? So this is a small fraction of the total group of people. So even though it sounds like a lot of people, and did this happen? Do not ask me if this happened, because you know the answer is, we don't know. Eh. It, it makes sense in the telling of the story that there would be some kind of punishment. Interestingly though, God wants to destroy everybody. Moses convinces him not to, goes down still, 3,000 are killed. Do with that what you will. I cannot tell you why. All right. At the very end, they have finished the receiving of the commandments, the instructions about the tabernacle, and they begin to build it. So we end Exodus with having received all of this instruction from God of how to build the worship space. When we transition to Leviticus, the people will be taught how to worship. So Exodus is in Egypt, out of Egypt, receiving the law and the macro ideas from God. Leviticus is where the rubber hits the road, how it actually functions. So now we are done with Exodus. Any final comments, questions? Yes. 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 So the observation is interest in how Moses seems to be able to change God's mind. That God almost seems to not know what to do or seems willing to just kind of pivot 180 degrees if Moses asks. It is a very interesting dynamic. In fact, if any of you have read, I know a few of you have told me you've read Zora Neale Hurston's Moses, Man of the Mountain. That's kind of a macro theme in the whole thing. Moses is, in a sense, the superhero of the Bible. He's almost superhuman in his capacity to both be in God's presence and also change God's mind. Even Jesus, throughout the Gospels, we never get an explicit moment of changing God's mind. In fact, we actually get an in, a somewhat interesting moment of Jesus in the garden saying, are you sure it has to be this way? Can I do anything else? He says it more elegantly than that, but that's really what happens. And so 
Moses stands alone as a very interesting, unique character in the entire Bible because he seems to have this capacity to shift God. Now, you can make the argument Abraham kind of did this with Sodom and Gomorrah, in a sense, where like, if you if, uh, don't kill everybody because there might be a few faithful people and God kind of changes his mind, changes his mind. It is, not, uh, it is not unique that God changes his mind. It is, however, unique that Moses seems to have near equal authority around decision-making with God. All I can tell you is we have... No evidence of Moses ever existing. I do think there was a real person, um, probably his name was Moses, who actually led the people. I think all of that was, is historic. However, as people's stories are told for generation to generations, if you really want a person to be grand, their story gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think this is, I think we totally know this, uh, just as Americans, I've used this image many times in here. Talk about any of our founders, especially someone like a George Washington. And the stories surrounding him are just superhuman. Um, he is the best person ever. And he was the wisest person ever. And he was perfectly blah, blah, blah. He was not. Was he a good leader in the aggregate? Sure. Was he the perfection that all the stories seem to make him out to be? Absolutely not. But it is very good for us as a nation to take leaders that seem to have very exceptional qualities and lift them up. It is instructive to us as people in that nation to lift up and celebrate qualities we hope to emulate. That's just kind of general psychology. Yeah. Would you ever say that about the mad Jesus? Would I say what about the mad Jesus? The aggrandizing over a long period of time. Are you asking? I'm sorry. I'm not sure what you're asking. Will you try again? Oh, thank you. You're asking if Jesus's story kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger? Yes. Um, I think that there is no question Jesus's story was refined over time for sure. We can look at all four Gospels that exist in our Bible, and we can see a very similar story in at least Mark, Matthew, and Luke as we find in earlier Gospels. So I think we've talked about this in here before, but there are lots and lots of Gospels that were written. Only four of them are in our Bible. There are dozens of others that were written. Pretty much anyone who actually knew Jesus in person, all the apostles, Mary his mother, Mary Matt, they all wrote Gospels. Because in a sense, they were trying to remember and tell the story of Jesus. But theirs were almost like shorthand. They told little snippet stories. They weren't telling a novel kind of story like we get with the four that are in our Bible. With the, Mark's is a little stripped, but if you look at Matthew, Luke, and John, they tell very elegant whole stories. There is a beginning and there is an end, and there is a good arc of development. That kind of refinement absolutely happened. A good storyteller knows that they need to include and exclude different things. And so as the stories were being told, those stories absolutely shifted. They were storytellers. They were not looking. The idea of historic accuracy is a modern construct. Stories were not meant to detail historic accuracy. Stories were meant to be true. And so when those gospel writers wrote the stories of Jesus, they wanted the most true story possible. So whether Jesus stood there or said that or walked wherever, that was less concerning because that was really not the point. The point was how people felt, the impact he had, what we were then called to do because of those things. And so 
to answer your question about did Jesus's story get somewhat bigger or less historically accurate? Of course it did, because that's just what it was. That was the culture at the time. But we're talking about a few decades between Jesus's life and when the Gospels were written, and we're talking about many centuries between when Moses and the people are at Sinai and this story was written. And so if you were to tell a story of something that happened 30 years ago, you will not be as precisely accurate as you would have been had you told the same story the day after. But will, would you be more accurate than your ninth great granddaughter telling that story? Yeah. So I think it's a magnitude rather than it being a yes or no black and white kind of answer. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Oh, Kristen. Um, okay, the question is, if God can change his mind, what does that do to traditions that believe in predetermination or predestination? Um, first off, we cannot read really the Old Testament, certainly Exodus, as somehow an accurate retelling of God's mind changing. This is a story. Did God change his mind? Not like this. God is not... The God that we know is the God we see incarnate in Jesus. And so if you start there, then God's omnipotence, whatever you want to say, is constant. The stories that we read about God in Exodus can make God out to be flippant. I think the flippancy causes us to begin to misunderstand God's response to us. And at the risk of getting off track, this is like the prayer stuff that we have done for years. Whereas we can misunderstand prayers as somehow being like a magic spell. If we say the right words at the right time in the right way, then God might do the thing we asked for. That, that's not prayer. That, that's not the best of it. Instead, prayer is really deepening our own faithfulness and relationship with God. Now, should we ask for stuff we want? Absolutely. Why? Jesus said. But is God somehow up there thinking, hmm, maybe I'll cure that cancer, but only if the person prays the right way? No, that's not how this works. Nor is God up there saying, I'm going to cure the cancer. Oh, mm, that wasn't a very good prayer. I guess not. This does not happen, right? I mean, we absent-mindedly kind of think that might be the case. Now, none of us would say, yes, I believe that. But we sort of, in the way that we pray and hope, that's actually not too far away from what a lot of people think about prayer. Um, and so I want us to... Receive these stories like God changing his mind more so as a way of understanding how the ancient Jewish people thought of God, not how God actually is. You answered that as an Episcopalian. I did. The Protestants I'm talking about. I am Episcopalian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Okay, so you're talking about Calvinism. So you're not going to let me out of predestination. Um, I will, I really have no time. Well, what I would really say to you is n that stuff's not right. Um, so sorry for my Presbyterians who are in here. Um, that sort of Calvinist predestination, predetermination sort of stuff. No, it, it really is not. It's really not there. It is a, it is a, a faithful attempt at trying to really define how God functions. And I think, as an Episcopalian, that the desire, the good desire that led to the theology of predestination 
is really just like the good desire of the Jewish people after the exile that led to the excessive amount of rules around what is and is not right and how you do it and how you clean and all the other stuff. And what we know of Jesus is Jesus walked into that excessive, incredible legal tradition and said, good try, but that's not really it. Really it's about loving God and loving your neighbor. That's it. There's nothing else for you. Do not put boundaries around it. When we start putting boundaries around who to love and how to love and when to love and all the other stuff, we've now lost the point. And I would say that the predestination is just that same kind of thing, where by trying to nail God down so specifically, we have totally missed the point. And so if you grew up in a tradition that told you some are going to heaven, some are not, it's already determined, good luck. That's, it's just not, that's not there. It's not there. So you can take that and put it down and come with us who just kind of think God loves us. I probably told you the story before. Um, I grew up Catholic and I still, even though I know it is not true, I still get the feeling like if I do something wrong, God's watching. You know, I kind of, I, I get that like I, I might be struck or I, I have to like do the thing or I've got to go and like say the right number of Hail Marys or whatever. I mean, that's still in me. And then I know I have to intellectualize myself to say no. That's not how this works, but it feels like that's how it works because it's just how I was brought up. What I see in my own children who were brought up in the Episcopal Church is they just think God loves them regardless of what they do. And isn't that nice? Sometimes I would like a little more fear of God in them, but you know, occasionally where I'm like, God, grace, you know, it's like, it's like they're just fine. They know God loves them. I'm like, no. Oh. He might not love you quite as much right now, you know, but that is not true because, you know, we don't earn or deserve any of God's love. We get it anyway. So yes, good. I'm so glad they have that. Um, okay. Any other thoughts or comments? All right. Let's get into Leviticus. We'll have a number of weeks for this. And Leviticus is only so interesting. So what I want to start to say to you is, when good people try to read the entire Bible, they start with Genesis. Oh, it's good, some good stuff, right? And the stories are good and they're grand and they get to Exodus and they're like, whoa, this is so fun. And then like Moses is making them drink gold. I mean, it's all great. And then they get to Leviticus and it's like they slam their face into a wall. Leviticus, not exciting, but important. So we are going to be good, faithful people we're going to try to unpack the good, important things in Leviticus, but I'm telling you right now, the stories aren't that great. <laughs> so just don't go looking for them. Um, I am not a rule follower, by and large. Um, like I tell my staff and my wife, I think rules are suggestions. And so for me, Leviticus is one of those things that I'm like, blah, 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 blah. So I'm going to try and get to the heart of what this stuff really is. Leviticus fits in the middle of the Torah. I hope we remember the Torah, the five books of Moses. We've done Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus is next. And Leviticus, in a sense, kind of bridges the good stories. Leviticus, uh, the instructions in Leviticus really show clearly that Judaism is an orthopraxy tradition. And probably a couple years ago, we talked about this. Christianity is an orthodoxy religion, which means right belief, orthodox, right belief. Judaism and Islam, among others, are really orthopraxy traditions, which is right action. For Jews and Muslims, it is much less important what you believe and it is much more important what you do. For Christians, it can often be opposite. Now, I have, a, I have an opinion about this. For Christianity, most of its history and in most traditions, it is more important what is believed than what is done. I actually don't think Jesus thought that. So I tend to preference doing stuff over believing stuff. 
Did you hear that? I am not concerned what you believe because I actually think the Holy Spirit is at work. And if you go and do stuff, belief will come. Until you actually experience God in the world in some tangible way, then intellectual assent is not good enough. We have to actually go do stuff, love people, receive love, in order to then belief to be so very real to us and be that transforming power. Which is why, and if you've ever done outreach here or anything like that, you've likely heard me say things like, I don't mind what is done, I just want people to go do things. And when around giving, which we're gonna get to in a minute, I will often say, I am not here, nor should the church be here, to convince you to care enough about the church to give. Actually, it's the other way around. You give, and then you will care a lot about the church. And Jesus said this. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, not the other way around. Yes? Yes, it is, James. Mm. Bub, our good, our good non-denominational Christian, um, she brought up James. So the letter of James is where Catholicism anchors its theology around good actions. Interestingly, Catholicism is actually more like the ancient traditions than Reformed traditions. I, <laughs> it, Catholicism is much more concerned about actions than belief. So you go to church, you get communion, you go to confession, and you confess, you do all those things. Belief, yes, good, it will come, that's the idea. And the, what I love, love, is the classic, I cannot help this, but the classic example of this in my mind is the end of The Godfather, remember that? Where it's like everybody's getting whacked during the baptism right? So it's, if you haven't seen this in a while, go back, it's a treat. Um, the, you know, you got the horse head in the bed, remember all this? It's good children's books. Um, so there is this regular idea within the Roman Catholic Church that you need to do the right stuff. Now, obviously, belief matters too, of course it does. But we're talking about kind of step one is a doing. Step one is an experiencing. I think it's very right for us to say that nobody is coming to faith as a Christian person without having first experienced God's love in some way. That could be your own parents. That could be a friend or a neighbor. That could be a total stranger. Somehow, we experience unearned total grace of love, and then we kind of start wondering what that's about and then belief comes later. That's all I'm talking about. It's not a devaluing of belief, but it's a right ordering that the experience comes before the belief. Okay, thoughts or questions about that? All right, so Leviticus. Essentially four sections of the entire book. First 10 chapters, we're talking about how to use the tabernacle. In other words, how do you actually do worship? Chapters 11 through 15, you don't have to know this. We're going to do it all. That's really about rules of being clean and unclean. So the question about could women go in the tabernacle, we will answer that because there are actually detailed rules about how you are clean or unclean. And unfortunately, blood makes a person unclean and women just are around blood more regularly than men. So that creates a problem about being clean. Then you've got a little moment in chapter 16 where we talk about atonement and really establish Yom Kippur, which is, I would say, my Jewish colleagues would say, that's probably it. I mean, like, that's number one. That is the number one moment for Jews each year is Yom Kippur, sort of like our Easter. That's just, bar none, that's it. And then the end of Leviticus talks about what is often considered the holiness code, it's just ways to be good. And the word that is used over and over and over again is being holy. How to do stuff that keeps you a holy person. That's really the arc of Leviticus. So we're going to jump in to how to worship. So this is, we've got a, three more things to do. 
worship, offerings, and reconciliation. So let's look at Leviticus chapter 1, right at the very beginning. And I'm going to prove to you that Leviticus is not a page-turner. Ready? Leviticus chapter 1. The Lord, oh, I'm sorry, I should have preference by saying almost the entirety of Leviticus is God talking to Moses. So if we just kind of put that in our minds, that really it's God said to Moses and then lots and lots and lots of stuff from God. That's kind of over and over and over again, the structure of Leviticus. So this is not really Moses's ideas of things. Moses is giving the people what God told him to say. Okay, so Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the Lord of Israel and say to them, When any of you bring an offering of livestock to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the herd or from the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the Lord. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be acceptable in your behalf as atonement for you. The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The burnt offering shall be flayed and cut up into parts. The sons of the priest, Aaron, shall, be put, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the parts with the head and the suet on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water. Then the priest shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord. Man, that just lights up your heart, doesn't it? <laughs> Leviticus is a lot of that, where it is super specific about how proper worship is to be done. They have just built this tabernacle and they've put it in the tent and they've surrounded the tent by the fence, the stuff that we looked at last week. Now this is the how to do it right kind of stuff. A good question to ask is whether they had this kind of clarity at the foot of Mount Sinai right now. I'm gonna go with no, that this sort of detailed legal clarity around proper worship was developed over a long period of time. Now, was there a tabernacle in a tent where they worship God? Sure, for sure. Did they have this kind of super specific process defined yet? If you wanna say it came from the mouth of God, that is okay. I think what is happening here is a retrospective on the specificity that God requires for proper worship. Why? I could be charitable or cynical here. Charitable is because they were doing their best and they really wanted to be faithful. Great. Cynical is who wrote this? The priests whose job required people to need them. And so if I am going, and we have, part, we have so many examples of this. Think about the first 1,500 years of Christianity when no books existed and people were illiterate. Who told them what the Bible said? The priests who could read. So if I am in the pulpit telling you what the Bible says, which will then influence your behavior in very specific ways, and you cannot check me? Guess what I might say? Whatever benefits me. That is cynical. I got it. But it is human. And so I think it's always a balance. It's a sliding scale of faithful and, and human. And so these rules and regulations around proper worship absolutely had influence from the people whose jobs required everyone to make good sacrifice, of course. Was it a nice thing to do theoretically in thanksgiving to God? Sure. But do I actually think God cared about washing the entrails with the legs? No. Thoughts or questions?
Good. Now let's talk about making offerings. Okay. Chapter two. This is, we're going to burn through Leviticus relatively quickly because it's just that exciting. Chapter two, verse one. Here's the good stuff that's going to make you uncomfortable. Ready? When anyone presents a grain offering to the Lord, the offering shall be of choice flour. The worshiper shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. After taking from it a handful of choice flour and oil with all its frankincense, the priest shall turn this token portion into smoke on the altar, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord. That's all we're going to read of chapter two, because here is really the point. Chapter one starts with big offering. We see in chapter one that we could make an offering of livestock to the Lord. That could be a bull, it could be a goat, it could be a sheep, whatever. How many people do you think had enough wealth to ever sacrifice any animal? Very few. So then what? If you can't even afford to eat meat, which would be most of them, then how in the world are you able to afford just burning one up on the altar for God? So chapter two offers a way for everyone else to properly offer to God. And in chapter two, what we see is bring some flour, bring some grain, put a little oil on it, whatever you got, bring it. The priest can create smoke and a good odor. In other words, the priest can offer that up to God and it means just as much to God as someone bringing a bull to offer on the altar. But here's the trick. You've got to bring the best you can. That's the trick. If you've got hundreds of sheep, you better bring a sheep. If you have no animals to speak of, you better try your best to get a little oil to put on your grain. And if you've got even more, you better bring a bull. This is really the moment that anchors the whole idea of stewardship. Our idea of stewardship goes all the way back to this kind of Jewish understanding of you give in thanksgiving to God a portion of the best of you. That's actually what you give. And it is not about whether, <laughs> what do I want to say? This expectation of offering to God is not at your convenience or at your pleasure. It is your responsibility. God has, through grace, chosen the Israelites to become his people. And in thanksgiving for that, they give. And they give the best they can. It is not an option. In Christianity, when we receive ideas like this from the Jewish tradition, Christians have, I, in my opinion, turned this around because of a misunderstanding of grace. We know that we receive God's grace, that through Christ, grace is poured upon us. That love is unearned, undeserved, nothing we've done, nothing we will do will separate us from God's grace. And we think then that we have nothing to do for it. That is not true. We receive that, thank you, and in our gratitude, we give back to God. And we give back to God by giving back to each other. That is actually what we do as a faith community. When we give of ourselves and we say time, talent, treasure, that is us saying thank you. It is a thank offering. That first fruit kind of giving is important to us not to earn God's grace. We get that anyway. But to thank God for the love and the grace, the giftedness and the provision and all of the above, the many blessings we receive. Christians have over time made that optional. If you can spare some change, 
make a gift. If you give anything, then you're good. And I will tell you very plainly and with all the love of Jesus I can muster, that's actually not enough. We have a lot of people who make nominal gifts to this church and it's not enough. And I am thankful that they are on a journey. But if your gift to your faith community, whether you go to St. Michael or not, is not a gift that means something to you, it is not enough. And it is not in order to earn God's grace. It is because you, in your spirit, in your soul, we are called to be thankful. And for us, gratitude needs to be tangible. Lip service doesn't do it. That tangible gift, actions, money, all of it, is important for our own good. And I believe that so firmly that you can be mad about me if you're sitting there having given your $500 pledge and I'm telling you that's not enough and you are mad, go be mad for a minute and I'm happy to talk to you anytime because it is better for our souls that we give more. It will mean more to us. Our faith will transform us. We will be more and more the people that God made us to be the more we give. There's a direct correlation. And I tell people all the time, tithing, whatever, 10%, that's not the point. I want you to feel your gift. If you can give a bull, you've got to give a bull. And if all you can give is some grain with some oil, then you give your grain with your oil. It needs to matter to you. It needs to be enough to change the way you live because then the gratitude gets into your bones in such a way that you can be changed forever. That is what I want for you. And in a sense, here in this chapter, the Jewish people are beginning to form that kind of idea around giving thanks to God, not to earn, but out of joy. Thoughts or questions on that? Yes. Yeah, Bev, Bev recalls Malachi, give with joyful hearts. And you've likely heard in the past, because Episcopalians love this crap, when they say things like, you know, be a joyful giver. That is so nice. And it's great. But it still makes it soft. And I think that we have to actually be countercultural in the way that we give. Because otherwise, we'll make every excuse in the world every excuse about I've got a thing over here or I can't because of this or whatever. We do what we think is important. And if giving to your faith community has not made it up the ladder of priorities of importance in your life, I want it to. Because I want that for you. It is never easy to give a lot. Of course it's not. But I'll tell you, every young couple I counsel before they get married, I make the recommendation that they start tithing right now. And oftentimes people say, oh my gosh, you know, you're 24, five, six-year-old tithing? They're building their life. Yes. But the more money you make, the harder it is to give it away if you don't start giving at the beginning. So before you have any, start giving. And then the more you earn, the more you give, and it's just built in. And then you can look back at your life and think about how much you have actually given. And I tell people all the time, if you're spending more on your vacation this year than you give to the church, not good enough. If your handbag is more than what you give to the church, not enough. If you're giving more in club dues than you are to your church, does that feel okay? It is that kind of challenge that will make you squirm in all the best ways. But it matters so much to our spiritual health that I do not mind pushing. 
This is where that starts. Thousands of years ago, people understood how critical that is to their spiritual health, and they codified it. We are not smarter than them. We have, in a sense, lost one of the real deep realities they knew. And I think we can reclaim it. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's absolutely possible. And now I have run out of time. And so with that joyful note, I will send you off. And next week, we're going to talk about reconciliation and kick on through the next few chapters of Levit Leviticus. Good to see you all. Bye. <laughs>